This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Ben Egan. Ben and his family have a 20,000-acre mixed farming operation just south of the Macquarie Marshes near Warren, where they farm irrigated cotton, winter cropping and a cattle operation. In this episode, Ben talks to us about the path his family had taken to help forge a positive outcome from their succession planning process and how this has also led him to refine how to better prioritise his attention between the different enterprises with a greater focus on those enterprises that require his special attention. You'll also hear Ben talk about the challenges the wet seasons have had on his cotton and grain operations and how past experience in dryland cotton may just give him the confidence to sow the crop again this year. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Rowan Leach sat down with Ben to chat within the vast sitting room of Kyamran. G'day listeners. Today I'm here with Ben Egan from Warren. Ben, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Thanks very much. Ben, you've got me here at Kyamran, just north of Warren and south of the Macquarie Marshes. First question is, this is a beautiful house, mate. (laughs) When was it built and what's the story behind it? Yeah, so we've just recently gone through our succession and my wife Elle and our three kids have transitioned up to the homestead. And so it's a beautiful 150-year-old homestead that we did extensive renovations in late early 2000s and phenomenal house. It's huge. It's huge. I think I walked through about three sitting rooms, so (laughs) get lots of sitting done here. (laughs) Yeah, it took a bit of transitioning from our little three-bedroom cottage to walking on top of each other to having a lot more space. So we're very fortunate and very grateful for that. Awesome. Mate, if you could just start off with a bit of an explanation of what you do here at Cameron. So we, Kyron Pastoral is large-scale family-owned and operated mixed farming business. We run irrigated summer crops, predominantly cotton. We have grown sorghum in the past as well. We run an extensive dryland cropping program, wheat, barley, canola, chickpeas, and then also a cattle breeding and backgrounding operation. And that sort of encompasses about 20,000 acres across three farms, Kyron, Dufferty and the Gum Cow, that we've put together over the last... 30 years. We've got very strong ties to the land. I'm sixth generation to return back to the farm, which is very daunting and a bit of weight on the shoulders, but no pressure there. No more than I put on myself, I suppose. So yeah, what's the story there? The first owner makes it, the second one spends it and the third one regains it. What's the story there? Yeah, well, what does that make number six? (laughs) Don't worry, I've thought about that. It's like, am I the third again or (laughs) am I the second or... (laughs) No, it's all very interesting. I recently watched a video of Simon Sinek on leadership, him talking about the infinite game. And it really resonated me coming from a sixth generation farming background. How do we make this an infinite business? We've already lasted generations through here and farming is a very infinite program. Like We've been farming since the dawn of time. And he says, what changes is the players drop out. I was like, so how do we keep playing the game. How do we keep farming infinitely? And it really changed my attitude about strategic direction and 
why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And yeah, that's been my big focus in recent times. Mate, that's awesome. That's a really profound way to start the podcast. <laughs> While we're on that topic, you mentioned before that you've in the process of succession and succession doesn't finish and end. So do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So succession is a long-term process. We started ours about 10 years ago. Mum and dad's had us down for a family meeting and this was just before I came home to start working on the farm. And there we set out a program for the next 10 years. And now we're just starting to get to the pointy end of that transition as I take on more of the business profile and we start transferring of assets and how the business partnership starts to evolve. And it's never been a straightforward process. It's taken a lot of communication and planning and keeping things simple and precise, focusing on each of our own goals and intentions and what we want to do going forward might not be exactly what another party wants, but having that out in the open. The worst thing you can do is start to assume things. Yeah, it means you can work towards that's it and right, compromise that's on something. That's right, cool. and keeping that communication open is one of the biggest keys. And Dad's done it really well with just getting us all aligned and knowing what we want to do. Have you used the services of a consultant at all? No, we haven't. Because we've kept it open and communicated quite well, we haven't quite felt the need to bring in that external facilitator, which I always was a really strong believer in that we need to get that external facilitator in to help with the dynamics of family succession. And between mum, dad and my two sisters, we have an ability to act quite professional and talk openly and with limited emotion. If there's struggling communication paths, then I would by far recommend an external facilitator or someone to come in and help, absolutely. It's incredible just how language and you might be saying one thing, but your tone of your voice or your actions can just have such a profound effect on how you convey a message, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. How would you say that your siblings and your parents, are they happy with the process so far? I think so. We're still certainly in the trenches with it. And there's been a lot of change in recent months, being the move into the homestead and that change of dynamics. But I feel like it's turning a new page and they're setting a new direction, especially as we start building families and my sisters don't have children of their own and coming back to the home is going to have a different feel to it now, I think. Yeah, that's just another stage of life, I guess, isn't it? We'll get back onto the farming then. You mentioned it's about 20,000 acres. What's the split up of enterprise mix? Is irrigation and cropping more of your focus or is livestock? Depends how you look at it. On an area point of view, it's probably 50% grazing country, remainder cropping. But in terms of a business economic point of view, it's probably a 30% split. And it's been in every one year, we'll make two out of the three. So we'll get a good cotton year, a good cropping year, but the livestock might not do as well. Or we might have the cattle and the cropping, but no water for irrigation. So that cog hasn't been turning. I guess it's only been in recent years where all three start to click at once and starts to stretch the resources and the people and the management of the farm, which certainly spurred on a new insight onto, right, how do we need to manage this farm for all cogs to be running simultaneously and efficiently. And so Labor's, you just said that in our discussion before that you've just put a new livestock manager on. Is that because, say, livestock's not really 
what gets you out of bed, more the cropping stuff? I love all three. I really love my cattle, the cropping and the cotton. In terms of dollars, cotton is king. It's by far the best gross margin. It's a high input crop, takes a lot of investment in infrastructure, plant and equipment, but the returns certainly come through. The biggest challenge in the last five years, I guess, is we've grinded out the drought. We maintained staff as much as we could. It even got to a stage where I was tossing up to go and work in the mines just to keep my employee on farm. And we crossed that bridge and it was just towards the end of the drought and then the drought broke. And then it was just the two of us working full-time on farm and dad in the office sort of managing the direction. And we were able to rotate through a few casual staff and backpackers and the like, and I got another full-time on as well. And the last two years have just been the three of us trying to grow six, 700 hectares of cotton, crop 3,000 hectares of dry land. And the cattle enterprise just got a bit left behind, just purely from a time resources that I just didn't have the time to give it the focus that it needed and it deserved. And I really kicked myself for not implementing labor strategies earlier because I feel like I've just missed the greatest capital gain in the livestock enterprise of a generation. But in saying that, we focused on the cotton and the cropping because that's what produced the greatest profitability for this business. And rightly so, we had a big hole to dig out of coming out of the drought. So that's put my focus forward onto implementing infrastructure and investing in people. And so I've just put on a livestock manager and his partner is my livestock team. And they're going to go away and really focus on that livestock enterprise. We're really excited and enthusiastic looking at holistic management practices and really getting right into the grazing charts and the feed budgeting. That sort of stuff really excites me, but I'm still quite focused on the cotton and the cropping as well. And you focus where your priorities are and basically your bread and butter enterprises are. It's tricky being a diversified operation, but if you realize what your core business is and then outsource the rest, that's the way to go, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's what I've realized. We've got enough scale now that each enterprise in its own should be a sustainable farming business in its own right and should be able to sustain full-time labor equivalent and maintain profitability there. We shouldn't be restricting our resources and going, no, well, that doesn't turn over enough. I need to limit my time there. Whereas, no, I want to invest. I want to put people on there to really manage it and manage it well and give it the love and the devotion and the focus that it needs and deserves. And so you've got to give that to the livestock, give that to the cropping and the cotton to really get all those cogs in the business turning. Yeah, good. I guess it's probably been a long-term process and probably some of your cotton country and irrigation country is quite established and been there for 30 or 40 years. How have you selected which country is cropping, which country is livestock and which is for the irrigation? Very much comes down to the season. So dad implemented a lot of the irrigation development in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. There was a big boom in, in irrigation then in the Macquarie Valley. And then when the millennial drought hit, land no longer became our limiting factor, water did. And so we had a lot of irrigation development. We had 1,500 hectares laser leveled and developed into our irrigation network. But water availability was our biggest limiting factor. So 
now we budget on how much water we have available to us and then that'll dictate our irrigation strategy going forward. So in a year like this where water is plentiful, we'll go ahead with a full cotton program of 700 hectares this year and with our water account balance carryover going over next year, we can finally start to plan a couple of years ahead, whereas previously we've only been able to plan one year ahead due to water availability. We only grow cotton when water is available. That's why cotton is such a good crop to grow. We can pull it in, pull it out when the opportunity is there. So our water system is that we own a water access license and a share entitlement in the Burundong Dam. And depending on how full the dam is and the inflows into that dam will determine what our allocation of that license is for that given year. So we can do our water budgets and know with this amount of water, we can grow this much cotton sustainably this year. And that helps us plan forward and maintain that because water is really our most limiting asset and not land. So from the Burundong Dam, we'll put in a water order and it takes 14 days from release of the dam to reach us. And we need to be quite on the forefront, especially in a dry year, to be really well-timed with our cotton irrigation interval. We need to water that crop on the day. And if the water that we've ordered 14 days in advance is a day late, it'll really set back your cotton. Can have huge ramifications on your yield. Absolutely. So that's why a lot of farms, especially in the Lower Macquarie, have all invested in on-farm water storages so that we can order water, we can pump it into storage and then use it precisely when we need it. How was last summer's cotton crop? So last summer's cotton crop was probably one of the most challenging I've had. We had a cool start to the season and then we moved into our very wet winter crop harvest and normally we're finished harvesting by first week of December and this year the headers had to roll out two days before Christmas and we still had chickpeas and barley to go and between moving headers and chaser bins and silo bag machines through flood water and raining every second or third day trying to harvest between showers it was quite a strenuous year and then to finally get to the tail end of harvest and have to go turn around irrigating at Christmas time. There was no break. Then you throw COVID on top of that. Yeah, you just told me before over cover that it took six weeks for COVID to roll through your household from you to L to the kids. Yeah, so when the header contractors came in a couple of days before Christmas and had to take their header out to go back home down south, we all piled into a tractor to get across the flood water to go to the paddocks where we were harvesting and then pile all back in and get back out again. I had a call the next day that one of the boys tested positive for COVID and we should probably do the same. And sure enough, we got tested and on Christmas Day, I got the text message positive. So that was a fun Christmas dinner. And then, of course, we were having to isolate every seven to 10 days if you're a close contact. So I got it. And then a week later, Eleanor got it. And then the girls got it. And so we were close contacts for seven or eight weeks. And that made running a business and trying to irrigate cotton while socially distancing, and uh, which might sound silly on 20,000 acres, <laughs> <laughs> but just putting in all the precautions with our staff and trying to keep things rolling all while still flooded out and access being a very big drama. Did you lose any crop under flood water? No, fortunately, we've got a very good 
levee bank network to channel the flood water through the farm. It just makes logistics extremely difficult because it divides our farm into three different sections. And so we'd have to take a tractor across one floodway, get in a vehicle that we left there, drive over to that side of the farm, hop in a tinny, get down the supply channel to the other side of the farm over to Dufferty, where we're irrigating 300 hectares over there, camping out, we were swagging it for weeks at a time while we were running those irrigations and dad was sort of flying in, flying out food for us and doing all the meal preps and it made things very, very strenuous and especially with the three of us irrigating, we were certainly very stretched. Yeah, the floodwater has already caught me out and I'm one day into it. I've went the back way from Dubbo to Warren and didn't realise stupidly that the road would be shut. So yeah, one day in and I've already had to detour and I'm sick of it, mate. Yeah, that Reddenville break will get you. <laughs> <laughs> then how did the rest of the season go? You'd sort of think with all that rain and moisture that you maybe would didn't need to irrigate your cotton, but obviously that wasn't right. No, it certainly disrupted a lot of the irrigation cycles, but we've got a number of soil moisture probes to monitoring our irrigation interval and making sure that the crop is getting that necessary water on time every time. And so we can get that down to within half a day or, or an hour, really. We can sit and watch the crop and go, no, I think it can last another half a day and then watch the probes as well and really time that irrigation interval quite well. Aided us a lot in our managerial decisions, which soil moisture probes are nothing new. I think Dad started using the old data loggers in the early 90s there. Have they come a long way since then, though, the sort of information they can provide? Yeah, yeah. Those days we would trek out on a quad bike if it was wet to go and pull the data logger off to bring it back into the office to download the data. Now it's all telemetered and on your phone and on your laptop in the palm of your hands. The other one that I implemented last year was the use of 3G network cameras that would give me a live stream right to my phone. So I had four of them set up and I could move them around to any irrigation channel or head ditch or pump site. Oh, to help with the irrigation. I was like, that might be watching a cotton crop grow, mate. That sounds <laughs> sounds interesting, but maybe as interesting as watching grass grow. But no, you were using it for irrigation. Yeah, see, when it's a 40-minute drive to get around to where we're irrigating, waking up in the morning and going, what has that channel height done? Has it blown? Has it overflown? Has it dropped? What's going on over there? Just picking up the phone, clicking on that camera and getting that live stream. That's the water level we're fine, we're safe. That sounds like a game changer. Yeah. Or seeing the pump site, yes, no, the pump hasn't lost its prime, it's still running. The tailwater return system doesn't need turning on, it's still got plenty of freeboard there. Just saved a lot of time driving around and a lot of angst, overthinking what it could have done. It sounds like it was probably the year to implement it with all the travel issues that you had and access issues. What do you think is the next tech that you might give a go? with your cotton stuff? Yeah, pump automation is up there. The tech's been around to do that. We just haven't quite implemented it just yet. I still like going out to the pump and doing your checks and throwing your eye over everything first. But that could certainly be a step forward, especially the amount of rain that we've had, not being able to or have to flog out in a bike or a side-by-side or a ute to go and turn the pump on. I used to have to get on the quad bike, dry as a bone, helmet, goggles, gloves, vacuum pump, hoses, all on there and flog it out for an hour's ride to go and check if the pump needed starting or not from the rainfall. 
So the camera certainly made a hell of a lot of difference and saved a lot of kilometres. And just in a situation where you're already under pressure for labour, that's a huge plus, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of other technology out there that can bring you up a dashboard and channel height sensors, and but I'm a visual person. I like to see the images, not just a number and a line. So that live stream video image was a winner for me because I can see where the water height is. I can hear the pump running. I can see the delivery of the water. It's still running. I can tick a lot of boxes off. And even at night time, the imagery was still really good that I would just set it up, pointing at the water level, put my stick in the water level and walk away and check it in an hour or two hours or three hours whenever I wanted. And it wasn't until I had to drive over there and check things. So obviously the moisture probe that you mentioned, that's helping your agronomist make decisions as well? Yeah, definitely. So he'll be able to log on to our moisture probes and see where they're at, see if we've had any rainfall at those fields. So even in a tough season, you were able to get a good crop. What was the final wrap up on your last summer's cotton crop? Yeah, so very mild summer. Plant did really well, high fruit retention, and then it came to picking time. (laughs) And as soon as the pickers rolled out, the rain started and didn't stop. And that created a lot of angst. We all knew that this wet pick was coming. We would talked about it for years and we finally came to fruition this year. And I think one of the greatest benefits we had was not owning one and being forced to sit on our hands because pulling out bog pickers is not fun. The stories I've heard from this year have just been a headache you don't want. It was very frustrating because we'd get a shower of rain and then a week later you'd want to have a crack and when you're seeing your neighbours start picking and getting stuff off the bush and we're not, it really made you nervous and really anxious about getting this crop off. But the best thing for us, we'll force to sit on our hands and we had to wait till our contractor got here. He got bogged next door neighbour and then had to go down south and get some stuff done down there. But the second he got back here, we had rain on the 4th of June and then we were going on the 8th and we basically didn't stop for that month, maybe a couple of breakdowns, but we had a clean run and the discounts with the cotton quality were minimal. It's pretty incredible that it's been able to sit out in the – because I assume it would have been ready in April? Yes. Yeah, so being able to sit out there for two and a half months with minimal discounts, it probably – I was thinking this might be a headache for a lot of growers, but it sounds like you're able to manage a wet pick. Yeah, and that also comes back to the varieties and the technology in the actual plant that it's quite robust and has held on, not like previous years where rain events just knocked it all on the ground. We certainly had some losses with tagging out and stuff falling on the ground, but irrespective of that, the discounts and the yield loss were manageable. For the wet pick and the amount of rainfall that we had had, I didn't lose too much sleep over it. Yep. And so what was your final yield, mate, across the farm? Yeah, so we're still waiting for it all to be ginned. We're probably 50% ginned. We've still got bales out on the Duffy farm that we're struggling to get out because of the floodwater now. So that's causing angst. But overall, I think we've averaged just over 13 bales a hectare, which is very pleasing. Certainly hasn't been a record breaker as years gone by. 
but you'll take a good solid yield like that in a year that you've just faced with all the headaches and logistic nightmares that you Absolutely, absolutely. We've still kicked goals. It's done well. It's a good crop. Mate, with all this wet weather, fair bit of unsown winter crop area, would you take a punt and sow dry land cotton? Yeah, no, I think a lot of growers are keeping that one up their sleeves this year. We've got a reasonable area there that's still underwater. And if the opportunity arises, yeah, absolutely. I dabbled in a bit of dry land cotton after the 2016 flood in the 1718 year. And I planted that on the 1st of December after 40 mils of rain pre-sowing and then another 40. And that was it. That's all it had. It had a full flooded profile up on rain moisture. It averaged two bales a hectare. And that was on uh, super singles, so three metre spacings, one in, two out. And that two bales a hectare with zero in crop rainfall basically just broke even or a bit over break even. So that gave me a lot of confidence going forward that we pick up the summer storms that we usually would get in a January, February summer rain system. So that's probably worst case scenario. Exactly. With a La Nina summer spring predicted, you yeah could be a good option. Yeah, definitely keeping that in the playbook. Absolutely. The only other consideration is to have of that utilisation of land, whether that will limit for your winter cropping program the following year. Mate, just to wrap things up from today, what do you see as the big issue or issues in Australian ag at the moment? Yeah, that's a broad one. As I said at the start, I'm really a believer in that infinite game that we're playing that is farming. And to be an infinite player, you need to block out the noise of all the external forces that don't matter and just keep that focus on how do we stay in the game. And that to me is probably one of the biggest focuses that we as farmers in ag can do is to have confidence in ourselves to do what we've been doing for a millennia and that's farming sustainably. And don't listen to the outside noises trying to have influence on you and what you do. Just focus on yourself and making sure that what you're doing will sustain that business and that farm, whether it be irrigating cotton or grazing sheep or producing milk or anything in the agricultural sector because we have probably got the biggest task in anything of trying to produce food and fibre for what is an exponentially growing population of this earth and we need to be on top of our game to keep up with that demand all the while trying to do it with less resources. So just focusing on yourself and doing what you do best. And for us, that's farming. Yeah. They quite often talk about like spheres of influence and control and, and that farmers probably during the drought and tough times probably spend a lot of time worrying about the external factors and things beyond their control. But I like that point of focus on what you can control and within look at more focus your business. Yeah, that's right. And you'll live a happier life for it. Mate, that's brilliant. I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Thanks for your time today and thanks for coming on the Seeds for Success podcast. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, 
We've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. Bye.